Welcome back to the Philip Kiddick Book Club. It's been a while since I've recorded an episode. I've just gotten back from the United States, and um, I'm back in Taiwan now. Uh, I was trying to record some episodes in the U.S., but I didn't get that many done. I was I was kind of busy with my daughter every day. And since I got back, I've been tired. I've had things to do. I've had a job application to work on. So I've been a bit um, backed up. Um, but... I finally found some time to to get back into one. So in this episode, we'll be looking at uh, Philip Kiddick's short story from 1953, The Commuter. So it was first published in Amazing. So this must have been a big sale for, for Dick. I don't know if it's his first sale to Amazing. I don't think so. But, you know, mostly he was publishing in kind of smaller magazines. Well, not, not as prestigious as this. So this is, it was a big sale for him. Um, it was so. It was the August September issue of 1953. Uh, it's currently in the second volume of the collected stories of Philip Dick. You can get it there. Uh, I'll also say that this is one of the stories that's being adapted for the the TV series, the anthology TV TV series coming up, uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And I'm really looking forward to what they do with this episode. It's it's a really short story. I guess we're going to stretch it out into a whole hour show which is i think gives us a lot of room to do interesting things with it uh for me there's a couple ways to look at this story on the one hand you have kind of just the alternate reality thing yeah you kind of you take a train you end up in a different world right and that's interesting of course it's been done before as well you know the fish out of water the person waking up in a different world they didn't understand i mean that goes all the way back to the twilight zone when you had characters in that situation. But looking at it through kind of Philip K. Dick's eyes, I, especially when you think about it, of his critique of suburbia and the way America was becoming in the 1950s with the Levitt towns and how every town looked the same. Um, and I, I think that is part of what's going on in this story here. It's not so much that you get into a different world. It's that if you went to a different world, would you even know it? Because everything is so the same, right? So the character in The Commuter goes you know finds the town he lived in doesn't exist anymore but does that really matter because I mean, yeah his wife's not there or whatever but every town is essentially the same and i think that's the way i'm going to go with the story rather than just an alternate reality and i and i hope the tv series does more than just the twilight zone kind of someone wakes up and they don't know where they are anymore but we'll see Let, let's jump into this the the plot summary so we end up with a, a guy named Critchett. Critchett. Uh, he's described just as a little fellow in the first page. He's exhausted and defeated by a day at work. And this is an important point. As all commuters are, they're defeated. I, you know, I, I work basically as an adjunct professor these days in, in Taiwan. And sometimes I had to go to like different towns. I, I quit that job, but sometimes I'd have to go to a different town. And I'd have to get up at like 5 a.m. to get on the very first bus to get to a train, which would take me there. So I, I kind of sympathize with this character. And then at the end of the day, I have to come back, right? Um, but you looked at people's faces. In Taiwan, people usually don't look at each other on, on the trains. They, they look at their cell phones. They look at their screens. So they, they fit right into a bad sci-fi movie. Yet, in you know, I, I tend to kind of look at people and, and try to sometimes tell stories about them in my head. But you find these people who really do look defeated. So this image of the exhausted, defeated looking man coming home or going to work on a train is really apt, I think. And I think a lot of people experience this. 
He goes to the train station and he permutes, he purchases commuter ticket book, right? So uh, it's, you know, I guess it's like discount tickets if you buy them in a book, right? And I've done that too. The tickets go to a place called Macon Heights. Uh, I guess that's his home. And the ticket seller, whose name is Ed Jacobson, tells him uh, there's never been such a, a, a town on the train routes. The commuter begins to protest, but then he, he kind of phases out and disappears. So that's all that that's all we get. Um, so actually, yeah, this story is initially from the point of view of the ticket salesman. That's I you know I like to see if the TV show does that because that'd be kind of fascinating. Um, because they see these people coming in every day, and for him, this groundbreaking thing has happened to him. Right, he finds out that the world he lives in doesn't exist anymore, or something has changed. But for the ticket seller's point of view, it's just another person making a stupid mistake. Right, well, at least until he disappears. Jacobson then reports this strange incident to a supervisor the next day, and around the same time as the previous day, the little man comes again. This time, Jacobson escorts him to the manager's office. Payne, the boss, collects as much information as he can from this commuter and concludes that Macon Heights must be 30 miles from the station. But the map confirms that there's no community by that name. And so you get this map of all these different communities. And we assume they all look the same. They all have the same services, the same bar, the same laundromat, the same little grocery store, the same Levittown homes. But none of them are called Macon Heights. And then once again, the commuter vanishes. The boss, Payne, visits the apartment of his girlfriend, Laura Nichols. He asks her to go to the library and look up Macon Heights and local records and newspapers. He's, got, he's kind of curious about this. So he goes to dig in deeper into it. And Payne explains that he's going to try to visit Macon Heights directly when he finds it exactly where it is. So we got kind of the plot up and rolling here. The next day... Payne rides the train out to Jacksonville, slightly past the 30-mile radius, so that's kind of where he thinks Macon Heights might be. The conductor on the train has no knowledge of any Macon Heights place, so he asks the locals, and they don't really know. Uh, so he transfers to the B train, which Critchett insists is what he takes from Macon Heights into the city for his commute. On his way back, the train eventually does stop at Macon Heights. The schedule Payne consults now magically Suddenly, I guess not magically, but because they kind of warp into another another dimension or something, shows Macon Heights as a stop midway between the towns of Jacksonville and the towns of Lewisburg. So these are two towns, and um, on the route, and in this kind of alternate reality, these this Macon Heights exists between these two towns. Okay, so we jump to Payne being back in the city. He gets. Back in the city, he gets Laura's report. So Laura, who we asked to go search us out, you know, calls him. Macon Heights, he finds out, was a planned development of suburban housing, uh, some of, of suburban housing authority. It was planned alongside two other communities, which were developed, but Macon Heights was defeated by a single vote in the city council. So he immediately leaves his house by cab to go see the insurance company that Christian works for, because he says, well, if that town doesn't exist, he does commute into the city. Maybe the city has this insurance company and knows something about this, this guy. So Payne visits uh, Macon Heights as well. He interviews some people living there. And it seems to be a typical town. He, he realizes that the materialization of Critchett's insurance company in the city suggests actually an alternate reality where Macon Heights was approved and was spreading into the 
you know, the, it affected how the city is too in that reality, right? New businesses, you know, for whatever reason. But he also fears a sudden alteration in his own life. Would his and Laura's life be safe if he spent too much time in this kind of alternate reality? He hurries home, and on the way he notices many changes. Inside the apartment he finds Laura, but it's not his wife, um, and their son. Pain's awareness of things, that things are different, fades away as he become accustomed to his new reality. Right, so in this alternate timeline, um, Payne is not his wife. That that's a big change, but he starts to get used to it. So as he gets accustomed to the new reality, it's it becomes real. Right. So an interesting thing in this story, it seems to me, is you know the fish out of water. You know, someone wakes up in another reality, and how long does that sense of out of placeness last? How long do you get used to the fact that you're in a different world? And that seems to be the case here, that you suddenly, you get used to it pretty quick. Um, and the test for this I sometimes give is, you know, because I, I travel a lot. I spend a few months in America and then back to Taiwan. You, you come back and the town changes every time a little bit, right? And it, But you don't necessarily remember how it used to be, right? So you, you go and you see a store and you're like, well, that wasn't there before. But what was there previously? Was it a pizza place? Was it a laundromat? You don't really know, right? Um, and things just kind of move and fade and these, you know, change. And that's just how cities are, right? And we just get used to it. It's not that we walk through our life feeling disoriented the whole time. We, we get used to our new reality pretty quickly, even when things change in minor ways or in dramatic ways. We're pretty adaptable creatures, in other words. Um, now, it does seem in this case that Payne's whole consciousness is transformed to the new reality as well. And as his old self sort of dies out and dies. Well, this is one of Dick's... Well, well, first, before I jump into my analysis here, I, it seems that the TV series episode, just from like the previews, the trailers I've watched, seems it's going to be from the point of view of the commuter himself. So that, that's going to be a big change from the story. And here we got it mostly from the ticket sellers and then the manager's point of view. The commuter's just uh, in the background. But he, it seems we get the commuter's point of view more in, in the TV series. So that'll be a nice different perspective on it. Anyways, this the commuter is one of the best of Dick's early stories at describing shifting reality and how difficult they are to get hold of, right? The problem is not that you live in reality A and find out that reality B is the really real one, right? I know Dick has this quote, right, where he says something like, my goal is to not find out, you know, to find out what's beyond real to what's really real, right? So we end up with this binary kind of perspective. But I don't think that's what his work actually shows. I think his work shows like layers of reality and shifting realities and the things that in our real world change all the time, right? That both things are real. The past that we remember is real and the, and, and the present is real as well. And they're not the same, right? And that's where the shifting takes place. But this idea that there's a reality A and, and we find out we're actually in reality B, it's quite simple. It's quite common, right? Things like the satisfying marriage we're in, we're in turns out to be a facade or the satisfying marriage we observe in someone else turns out to be a fraud. The job interview process promises a happy work environment, but in truth, the workplace is dysfunctional and, and horrible. In The Commuter, Dick shows that the real insidious shifts in reality happen without our total awareness. Now, Macon Heights existed in Payne's mind as a real thing when he followed the debate over the planned development. 
right? He actually finds out that Macon Heights was a real possibility. It was uh, something that existed. It was real for a moment, even if only in documents and planning and in potential. It was potentially real, right? It was one vote from being real. And had that one vote been cast, you would have had houses built there, community built there, roads built there, a police station there. All the things that come with building a new town would have happened if just not for that one vote. Right, so Macon Heights uh, becomes a real thing when he follows those debates. It then, though, shifts, shifts out of reality. It never existed. Now, when Critchard shows up, Macon Heights once again becomes a very real thing. Another thing to say about this, though, is Payne could have lived his whole life not knowing that Macon Heights existed, not caring. It didn't matter to him. It matters, I guess, to the people who maybe live there, but it doesn't matter to the, most people. It's just a ticket a set of tickets that he might may or may not sell. Isn't this true of many suburban towns? I mean, we all know, you know, Chicago, New York, Houston, L.A., San Francisco, those big cities. But there is thousands of small communities, which none of us care about. Flyover country, if you will. But even around big cities, you have all these kind of suburban enclaves, right? I, I lived for a few years in Miami. And Miami is really that way, where it's really like a bunch of little planned developments, Connected by highways, it's doesn't it doesn't really seem to feel like a city in any any sense. Anyways, now the key element at the end of the story is not so much that in this alternate reality, um, Payne is married, has a son, but that he no longer aware is aware that the change took place at all. All this is just left a feeling. Quote: Just for a minute, everything seems strange, strange and unfamiliar sort of out of focus right and then he kind of gets used to the new reality now i submit that this is how we experience shifting realities most of the time changes are so subtle that we're not conscious of them now just to be clear this is not that i'm a strict materialist here and i don't think we should read dick in a strictly materialist way there are mystical things there are fantasy elements in his stories i am not i'm talking here about i'm not I'm not talking here about divine experiences, though. I don't think that's what's going on here. The shifting realities are real and part of our everyday lives. But they're often hard to get a handle on. Quote, maybe it has always been there. Maybe or maybe not. Everything was shifting. New things were coming into existence. Others going away. The past was altering and memory was tied to the past. How could he trust his memory? How could he be sure? It's the memory, end quote, but it's the memory that's fuzzy, right? It's the memory that's fuzzy. It's not the reality itself that's fuzzy. The, the, it's just we have a hard time getting a handle on it, right? We can't handle the ground shifting under us very well. Why am I dwelling on this so much? Well, it's because it's about urban planning, essentially. That's what this story is about, in my view. Urban planning is the shifting reality that's talked about here in The Commuter. Yes, in other books, Dick deals with other shifting realities, such as, you know, the drug-induced experience, maybe, or uh, the political lie, right? But here, it's urban planning. And Dick does it in other stories as well. Adjustment Bureau, for instance. Uh, the, I'm trying to think of the name of the story. Or Cosmic Puppets, the novel. Time of Join has a bit of this. Actually, quite a lot of it, but... You know, urban planning is something Dick thought a lot about, right? And one of the most memorable things about some of his films, the films that came out of his movies, I mean, like Blade Runner, Total Recall, is 
how will the cities look, right? So there's a really a important connection between cities and how they look and how they live and how they mature and change over time and Dick's writings. Now, urban planning is one of the best examples that we can point to of shifting reality really at work in our world, right? A revitalized community erases the historical memory of what came before it, right? We got this whole debate now about these Confederate statues, right? Right? People say you can't tear down the statues of Robert E. Lee because it's it's historical memory, right? And then they don't remember that these statues were put up as really totems of white supremacy in the early 20th century, coinciding with the rise of Jim Crow. Right. So the memory that's actually being propped up and memorialized is not really necessarily the memory of the Civil War and whatever heroism took place on those battlefields, but rather the white supremacy that came in that emerged in the South in the aftermath of Reconstruction and in the early 20th century. Right. So we we're not even aware of that. So urban forms, uh, revitalized communities do erase historical memory, right, create new memories by what they put in place. Often, this is by design, right? The builders of some giant mall may not want anyone to recall what came before the mall, right? It's just, that's the mall neighborhood. I'm thinking of my own neighborhood when I grew up. I guess the mall came in when I was around 10 or 8, maybe even a bit younger. And now that mall's being reworked into business offices and maybe a movie theater. That was in the news when I was visiting. But I don't remember what was there before, and I don't think the people who designed the mall wanted that. They, you know, that was the mall neighborhood. And they wanted people to remember it that way and feel it that way and experience the city knowing the malls in that direction, right? So you go there to shop or hang out or whatever you might do there. Cities are constantly undergoing these types of subtle changes. Uh, I think one of the best examples of this really is Times Square in, in New York City. And if you go to my book, Philip K. Dick and the World We Live In, I have a whole thing about Times Square and how it changed. And yeah, it got cleaned up, but it was also erasing a certain community that lived there. Uh, we can talk about gentrified communities. We can talk about, uh, you know, all kinds of urban spaces and what happens. Taipei, the city I live in, is undergoing a similar process where the government wants to tear down all these old like, five, four or five-story buildings or replace them with 10, 20-story apartment complexes, which will, of course, be much more expensive, which will mean you know, a greater divide between those who can own homes and those who can't in the city. So it's... It's designed, it's tied up in capital too. And for that, you need to read David Harvey's book, Rebel Cities, where he gets into the, like, really the function of urban planning from the point of view of capital and, and just, just where capital goes. That's the real problem in our, in our world today, according to him. Anyways, in this story, the difference between the world with make on heights and the world without make on heights is rather imperceptible. It doesn't really matter, right? Individual lives do change, I guess, for Critchett, it sort of matters. He can't get home. Critchett would simply live somewhere else, though, in another reality, right? Some other planned development, some other cul-de-sac, some other house that looks exactly the same. Well, his life would be different. He just would live in, he wouldn't live in Macon Heights. He'd live in, uh, you know, some other place. I, I couldn't think, I couldn't come up with a name off the top of my head. But I, I kept thinking of Miami, how... You know, I, I lived there for three years. I can't tell you, you know, Coral Gables versus, you know, some other place. I, I lived in a place called Miami Lakes, which is right next to another more kind of an urban place called Miami Gardens. Um, you know, and I could imagine someone who didn't live there getting confused quite often there. 
Now, um, what else would change? Well, Payne wouldn't get married. He, he in, in the alternate reality, he marries Laura, uh, who, who wasn't his wife in the previous timeline, or previous reality. But at the macro level, it's not clear how things are really different. People still go to work. They still commute from the suburbs to the city. The macroeconomic conditions aren't changed much, right? Tax policy is going to be the same. The president is probably going to be the same. Although in some of Dick's other stories, I think he does change the president as a symbol of, you know, which reality you're in. What shifts are taking place in in kind of the, the infra part of the spectrum, right? The, in, the underneath the spectrum, you know, are there. But I don't think it really matters that much. I think that's really the fascinating thing about the story. It's, it's so banal about these changes. You know, whether someone's married or not, whether someone lives in Macon Heights or Pine Springs, it, it really doesn't matter. So I'll, go, I'll come back to these questions when I examine adjustment team in a little while. Because it's a, it's a similar story there. Now, Dick's point about suburban development is rather interesting here. While cities seem to have an organic development and emerge out of their geographical conditions, I'm thinking here with classic cities, the Greek polis, Rome, London. These cities are really tied to their early origins and their, their geographical realities. Whether I have a river, Beijing is really in this kind of steppy valley place and that still affects how the people live there that's one reason pollution such a problem there is really can't escape suburbs though are really strange they're a strange type of city because they can be anywhere and everywhere geography matters little in planned communities it could be in the new mexico desert it could be in the tundra of central wisconsin where i'm from suburbs exist detached from nature right and that's part of the point right you you Bring in the water you need. You bring in the food you need. Everything is brought in from the outside. You plant grass that maybe is originally from Germany or some other place. You bring in flowers from whichever other place. You plant whatever trees you want to make that help beautiful. It's completely detached from the nature nearby. It's 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 completely a false creation, right? You have the same type of glass lawns, the same stores, McDonald's or whatever, the same housing designs. Right now, you might have regional characteristics that might put a little bit of taste here and there. Sort of like you can't have basements in Miami, right? But so you can't totally divorce yourself by, from nature. But they try really hard, and they get, do a pretty good job of divorcing themselves from nature. I'd argue regional characteristics pale in the face of this overwhelming homogeneity that that emerges. The key point in the analysis of the commuter is that Macon Heights literally is expendable. It doesn't matter if it exists. Right. Uh, it's existence in one place or another place or it's non-existence at all are all equally plausible. As disconcerting as this is, it's just a part of our world. Right. And probably a lot of our communities one by one vote. Right. In, in an urban planning committee meeting. What else do we have here? Well, we got the image of the demoralized worker shuffling through the train stations on their way to home. It's one of the more powerful images in the story. And I think this might be why, if the TV series really is going to do this from the point of view of the commuter himself, why they do that. Because this is, is a really powerful image. It's something that when we see, we're struck by. When a worker goes to work, their, their autonomy is over. When a worker comes back from work, they're exhausted. But their labors aren't over entirely. They still have the commute that stands between them and the end of their day. Right, so they can doze on the train, maybe. Right, you're not supposed to look at people, so you kind of got to look at your newspaper and read, even if your eyes are tired. 
maybe you flip around on your cell phone. Of course, now you will have a cell phone in a, in a story like this. Dick opens the story with the following description of Critchett. Quote, he pushed his way slowly through the throng of people across the lobby of the station to the ticket window. He waited his turn impatiently, fatigue showing in his drooping soul shoulders, his sagging brown coat, end quote. Critch's own commute puts another two hours to his day above his own working hours, right? An eight-hour day easily becomes a 15-hour day when you add in the commutes. And getting ready for work and your lunch break. It's pretty bleak. I mean, the eight-hour day, let's be real. I know people died for fighting the eight-hour day. I'm a labor historian. I'm, you know, the eight-hour day was a great achievement, right? Better than what came before it. But let's be honest, for a lot of people, the eight-hour day is a myth. Right, you have to get up. It takes an hour and a half to get ready, or an hour at least to get ready. And then you got to commute half hour if you're lucky, hour if you're not, more if you're really in trouble. At the end of the day, you have to commute back, and then you spend time just you know recovering. Maybe you have friends you go to happy hour after work with, so that's another hour to your day. You get home, you have barely time to see your kids. Right in Taiwan, this is really bad, by the way. We're you know. You don't even really have a strict eight-hour day, and people often don't come back till ten. You know, they never see their kids till the weekends. So that's an image here that's uh, that we have to remember. Um, I guess that's it. There's another story where we'll come back to this issue where I forget I forget the name of the story now, um, but it's it's a technology Dick uses a lot, and it's first introduced in the story I'm thinking of where it's a, it's a technology that allows you to basically warp from one gate to another gate, but you can only warp between the two set points, right? You have to set the points in advance. So most people can afford one, right? It's like a car, right? You can't afford two. So where do you set that gate, right? You could put it anywhere. You could set the gate in the Bahamas. You know, you could set it in your parents' house if you live far away from them. But no, people do it to work, right? Because that's the most of their traveling time. It makes sense to do that. Um, but that the fact that you'd have such an amazing technology used in such a banal way is, is such a horrible thing when you think about it. Anyways, that's it for the commuter. I've been talking too long about this. So uh, thanks you so much for listening. I'll see you next time with another Philip Kiddick short story. Can you help me remember how to smile? Make it somehow all seem worthwhile. How on earth did I get so jaded? Life's